0: This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast.
1: How can we get teens to discover their innovation potential? What is the secret of educating for innovation? And how will innovation matter over the next 20 years? Join us for a gripping look into the future economy and what students will need for success. Today's guest is an expert in residence at Harvard's Innovation Lab, and an extremely innovative educator himself. If you have been wrestling with how to bring innovation into your classroom, this episode was made just for you. And yes, we do talk about the F word, the other F word, failure, and how it relates to educational success. Tony Wagner has been an educator for his whole career. We don't normally think of English teachers as innovators, but you will soon discover why he is uniquely qualified to discuss creating innovators. Get ready for some shocking revelations. My guest today is Dr. Tony Wagner. Dr. Wagner is a teacher. Specifically, he was a high school English teacher for 12 years. Then he was a principal for two years. He's the author of six books, one of which really grabbed my attention, and that one is called Creating Innovators, and we'll probably ask him a little more about that. And he's currently an expert in residence at the Harvard University's Innovation Lab. And we'll ask him about that, too. So, Tony, tell us more about this.
0: Steve, uh, the Innovation Lab is something I've been affiliated with at Harvard now for three years after having had a number of other positions at the university. And this is really fun because I get a chance to meet with students from throughout the university, undergraduate students, graduate students from all of the different schools, who want to start something new. Who are looking for advice to create some kind of new initiative, often uh, nonprofit, sometimes for-profit, so they can make an appointment with me and we can sit down and talk about ways in which I might be able to help or mentor. It's great fun.
1: So when they come to you, well, what kind of questions do they normally ask?
0: You know, frankly, it's the full gambit. It's everything from kind of seeking a bit of career advice, you know, I want to make a difference, how do I do that, to, you know, I've got this app, you know. Um, I need help thinking about marketing, too. Um, I want to create a new curriculum. What are some entry points into schools? It it runs the gamut.
1: Well, I love the topic of innovation. And what was the purpose of the Innovation Lab there at Harvard when uh, when it was started? Uh, Were you involved in the starting of that?
0: No, I was not. But my understanding is that Harvard, like many universities, has a lot of young students who really want to be more entrepreneurial. They're somewhat less drawn to traditional careers in business and finance and and want to strike out on their own, and they want to make a difference. And the Innovation Lab's goal is to kind of be a kind of an incubator to to nurture and encourage students who have those kinds of aspirations. So is there any relationship between
1: the Innovation Lab and your book, Creating Innovators?
0: None at all. I wrote the book, uh, I think, prior to the innovation lab even starting. And so um, there's no direct relationship of any kind.
1: So have you been interested in the topic of innovators then, based on, uh, based on your book? What is it about the innovation that really strikes your fancy?
0: Well, there's two different kind of sources. Um, as a teacher, well, I'll go back even a bit further. You know, I, I hated school. I just hated it. And so I became a teacher in order to try to create a better experience for students, very different from my own. Which is not the reason why most people become teachers, as you probably know. So, innovation was what I did every day in the classroom. I didn't have that name for it, but that's in fact what I was doing. I was doing educational R&D, research and development, every single day. I sat down every Saturday, I kept a journal of what I was doing, what was working, what wasn't. I was reading, I was studying, trying new things. You know, iterating, you know, in the classic kind of innovator sense. So, but I didn't have that language back then, you know, and I felt very much like a loner doing what I was doing. Well, next step is I I became very involved with issues related to change leadership coming out of uh, having written a a dissertation at Harvard. I, I came to understand that a lot of educators are sort of being called upon to change, but they don't know why. They don't understand how the world is changing around them. So I set out to write a book to understand better ways to answer educators' questions. Why change? So I interviewed a wide variety of senior executives, from Apple to Unilever to the U.S. military. And I wrote a book in 2008 called The Global Achievement Gap. And I define the global achievement gap as essentially the gap between the new skills all students were going to need for the workplace as well as for citizenship and for learning versus what's taught and tested, even in our very best schools. And the uh, ongoing conversations with executives continued after I wrote this book, as the book became more and more successful and more widely known. And I began to realize that the changes I had captured and the new economy that I had captured in 2008 was continuing to evolve. And more and more and more, I heard executives talk about the need for the skills of innovation. So I became a student again, studying what is innovation, Uh, what does it mean to our economy, what are the skills required to be uh, innovators. And this time, instead of starting with interviews with the most senior executives, I started with interviews of young people who were themselves highly innovative, all of whom were in their 20s trying to understand kind of what their parents had done to help and encourage them, what teachers had made a difference for them and how had those teachers made a difference. So it's been kind of a long evolution for me to come to understand, number one, the importance of innovation uh, to our future, and number two, what it means, and number three, what must we do differently as parents and as educators to nurture the capabilities of young people to be innovators.
1: Well, I'm really interested... I because mean, that's a that's a long way from I don't like school. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I'm sorry, I gave you a lifetime. That's not what you asked for. But I'm well thinking but, about themes for my next book. <laughs> well, that oh, this is one of the things that we're particularly interested in understanding in our podcast is what is that journey. If it's okay, I'd like to, to go back in time a little bit. I'd like to explore some of those feelings you had as a as a younger student and why that was. Is that okay if we
0: do that? Oh, absolutely. It's fine. Because, in fact, I my next book is likely to be uh, a book about a lifetime of learning in and out of school and what are the important lessons I've learned and how did I learn them. And it begins with my being a student, of course. So
1: rewind to the point where you liked school and then pull us forward to the point where you decided you didn't like it. Do you remember a time when you did and then a time when you didn't?
0: I can't ever remember really liking school as an institution, Steve. There were occasionally and very occasionally a couple of teachers who made a real difference. But my dislike of school began in first grade when I, to be frank, had a crush on that younger, wonderful teacher. But I was given over to the older, meaner teacher because I didn't read well enough. Well, what happens, of course, is that I learned to love reading, but over time really didn't like the idea of teachers telling me always what to read and how to think about what I was reading. Particularly as a high school student, things became more and more difficult and unpleasant for me. I was reading a book a week, all the greats, you know, Hemingway, Faulkner, Steinbeck, Thomas Wolfe, Uh, but I rarely read the books that were assigned, or I made sure to only read those books after or before the teacher had ruined them for me. So, uh, and and I also began to write, again, entirely on my own, hating the kinds of assignments I got in high school English, but knowing that I wanted to write and, in fact, decided I wanted to become a writer. So my my education frequently interfered with my schooling, (laughs) as it were. Well, I like that phraseology of
1: your education interfering with your schooling or your schooling interfering with your education. When was that point that you realized the difference between schooling and education?
0: Well, you know, I grew up in the 60s, Steve, and increasingly part of what I realized is that the world was in chaos. I have a vivid memory uh, in November of 1963 of looking up at the sky. I was then an 11th grader. And this was at the height of the Cuban Missile, missile Crisis. At, or I guess that was 62, excuse me. And just being terrified, yet no one was talking about this. There was no understanding around us. And the same thing happened with the Kennedy assassination and then with the King assassination. I felt the world kind of in chaos, and yet there was nothing talked about in school that helped to make sense of that world. The same time I saw you know, tremendous race, racial pe- prejudice around me. And again, no conversations in school. So that's when I began to realize um, this was a world that, where there were real injustices and and terrible threats and so on. And I wanted to understand and to help him.
1: Was there a time after this began to occur where you knew that the solution was to become a teacher? I mean, you talked about that, but can <clears> you <throat> remember what a flip of the
0: switch or a... Well, I remember the one teacher whom I really liked and who ended up influencing my thinking about how to teach. Uh, I was a 12th grader. I wanted to write. I wanted help writing, creative, expressive writing. I was thinking someday I might like to write a novel. I was writing short stories. I did not like my English teacher, but I went to another teacher in that English department at that school, an Englishman, very kindly gentleman. I don't recall his name, sadly, because i tried to reach out and find him. Uh, And the school that I went to has since uh, gone defunct. At any rate, I said, will you help me to teach, to learn to write? And he said, of course, I'd be delighted. So we met once a week in a conference, kind of tutorial. And every week he'd assign me a new kind of writing to try, a new genre. A childhood reminiscence, a dialogue, a monologue, a description, a review of a movie or a, a restaurant or something. And I'd bring it to him, and he'd look at it, and he'd comment on a couple things that he thought might have been well done, and then make maybe one suggestion of something I should think about next time. And I just learned so much more and worked so much harder for that teacher for no credit than I had done in all of the other credit-bearing classes I had ever taken. And so for me, when I became a teacher, and I guess I knew I wanted to teach because it was the 60s and... I remember a disciple of, of Gandhi's whom I met at a conference, Narayan Desai, whom I asked, what is your definition of revolution? He said, revolution is the dynamic process of transforming individual virtues into social values. And something clicked in my head. How do you transform individual virtues into social values? You teach. So that's when I guess I knew I was going to be a teacher. And recalling back on that experiences with that other English teacher, you know, I began conferencing with my students and asking them what they wanted to read and learn about and write about. I was working in an alternative public high school for at-risk kids and uh, trying to re-engage them in learning. And it was a great kind of apprenticeship. My first five years of teaching were in that kind of environment.
1: Do you remember, I mean, is there one student throughout those years of teaching that just sticks out in your mind as that one success, like the reason you decided to become a teacher?
0: You know, I didn't become a teacher or I didn't continue teaching because of wanting individual students to succeed. I wanted to create a classroom environment that was alive. It was alive for all of the students. It was engaging for all of the students. That was my aspiration. And that was the educational RD I was doing constantly. How do I sort of get, my, get the sage on stage, off stage, and put students at the center of the learning and the conversation? But, you know, having said that, yeah, there are a couple of students I remember who, um, you know, I, I've sort of seen in the headlines. Um, I remember, vividly remember teaching this young woman whose father, I believe, was in the military. And, um, you know, I, I taught her in a creative writing class, a couple of classes, and got to know her well. And, well, years later, she's now an outstanding poet. I think she's teaching at Yale. And I've always been curious. I haven't reached out, and I should, but I've always been kind of curious, does she have any memories of our experiences together in high school?
1: You mentioned the environment that we try to create in our tech classes, and you do it from an English perspective, and that's this idea of creating a totally engaging environment. Our experience has been that even with, you know, every time you try to create a group or a a community of practice where the students are getting together to learn and you get the sage off the stage like you're talking about, there are still classes that blend or mesh better than other classes. Do you remember a particular class that just really, really blended well and that class was just one that sticks out in your mind? (laughs)
0: You mean a group of students whom I taught? Yes, yes. Well, I'll tell you the opposite story, Steve. Okay. (laughs) It it, it came together very well in the end, but but it took some some challenges on my part. I was teaching three sections of ninth graders, and I was now at Sidwell Friends School, which is uh, the school where Obama's children go, as you probably know. And uh, I had one class that was unbelievably rowdy. I mean, there were a lot of kind of bright kids, but they were just really challenging and difficult. They interrupted. They were noisy. They didn't listen. And, I, you know, I was now in my sixth year of teaching, and I'd never really quite had an experience of, of classroom management problem like that. And, you know, I tried talking to them. That didn't work. You know, I think I was not sure they ever really respected me as a teacher. So finally, at one time, About halfway through the semester, I had a controlled explosion, as it were. I said to them, that's it. You're wasting my time and yours. Get out of here. Middle of the class, right?
1: I didn't care where they went.
0: They all (laughs) left. And they came back a different class, Steve. And so um, the rest of the year, we just sailed. We had great experiences, really came together. So I think sometimes when a class doesn't gel... It may not be the kids. It may be, you know, that we need to try something different as a teacher. I'll give another example of an individual student. She's an African-American student, ninth grader. I will never forget this. She constantly challenged me, constantly kind of being disruptive in school. And I did the same thing. I finally pulled her aside and I said, Jeanette, this isn't working. So I'm going to put you on independent study for the next three weeks. Remind you that she's an African-American woman. I said, I want you to pick a, an African-American woman writer. And I want you to research her. And I want you to come back and present what you've learned to the class. So she did just that. Um, and she came back. I think she did um, Toni Morrison. And she came back and she did this amazing report. I mean, it was just outstanding. And for the rest of the year, we were at peace. And I, you know, to this day, I'm not entirely sure why. And then two years later, you know, in 11th grade, all the classes were elective back then. And I'm, I had an elective class on um, um, European literature, humanist themes in European literature. And lo and behold, first day of class in this elective class, she shows up with a big smile on her face. So that, that was another learning experience for me. So much of, I think, good Uh, teaching is innovation. It's trial and error. It's R&D. And it's iterating and prototyping from your experience.
1: I would have to agree. I have come to teaching late in my life. I started off actually as a researcher, actually in physics, doing actual research in a lab. As uh, we started our little company here, and my wife's actually the, the professional educator, I've had to learn a lot more about the education process. And I feel like I'm the student every time I walk into a classroom. (laughs) Well,
0: I think think that's, that's a good stance to have because I think a good teacher is continually learning from his or her students through the interactions and also continuing to learn how best to engage students with important content. And that raises the other question, you know, what's important content and how do you figure that part out? That's the other half of this equation. One half is understanding who your students are. The other half is understanding what do they need to learn, what's truly important, as opposed to trivial, as opposed to stuff they're going to forget the minute the test is over, let alone six months later.
1: I love how you separated those into the two different aspects my experience has been that when students walk into a classroom, every class is very different. Like there isn't a class that comes in that's the same as a class we've had before. Right. Some of the techniques may work, but not all of them. And, yeah. and it is that process of tinkering with, and I have to think of it like that because I'm, you know, I'm not a natural-born teacher. I have to tinker with it to see what works and what doesn't work. When was it for you that you realized that was the approach to bring to a classroom?
0: It really began very early in my teaching career when I had this group of very disaffected students at risk in various ways. Uh, And I was basically given a room in a high school. And we called it an alternative school. And my job was to figure out how to re-engage these kids with learning. And nobody had written the textbook. I'd done a Master of Arts in Teaching at Harvard and done student teaching there, totally unprepared for any form of teaching. The Master's degree was useless. It was a certificate, not not a certificate of mastery in any sense. Sadly, that's the way most teaching credentials are these days. They mean nothing. So I had to figure it out from day one. I had to be constantly trying to understand who each one of these kids is and how am I going to engage them. And that's what led me to start keeping a teaching journal. And every Saturday morning, I'd take out the notes I'd made from the week and start writing about... What worked, what didn't, and, and what did I learn and what my questions were. So it was a constant iterative effort. And I feel fortunate. If I'd just been thrown into a regular class, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would have learned as much, especially if I was, in today's environment, accountable for improving student test scores as an essential <laughs> element of my job. I mean, you know, there's only one thing to learn. How do I improve student test scores? And that's not learning, Steve. That's not education. That's something else.
1: Well, I'd like to ask you a question about that. Is there? We, we have teachers and parents, uh, our primary audience, and some administrators. If you're going to talk to parents and to teachers and to administrators about the education process, what's that one thing you would like them to know about it?
0: Well, I'm going to actually talk about the five core contradictions between the culture of innovation, as I've come to learn about it, versus the culture of schools and many traditional institutions as we see it around us all day. Because I think both parents and educators need to understand that even our very best schools are not developing the skills that students need the most for a competitive advantage. Begin with a quick context. We no longer have a knowledge economy. That was a term coined by Peter Drucker in 1959. Knowledge today is a free commodity, like air, like water, growing exponentially, changing constantly, There is no competitive advantage in knowing more than the person next to you anymore because Google knows everything. The world no longer cares how much our students know. What the world cares about is what they can do with what they know. That's the world of innovation. That's the new innovation era. So let's talk about this. Culture of schooling is a culture of individualization. I mean, individual achievement being measured and assessed and rewarded. Culture of innovation is all about collaboration. Innovation is a team sport. Contradiction number two, culture of schooling compartmentalizes knowledge and favors specialization. Well, there's clearly a role for specialization, but in the world of innovation, innovations happen at the boundaries of academic disciplines, never within an individual discipline. Contradiction number three, culture of schooling is a culture of passivity, a culture of compliance in the classroom. Whereas the culture of innovation is a culture of being active, of being constantly trying new things, a culture of creating, a culture of being generative. Contradictions four and five, Steve, are the most challenging of all. Contradiction four is all about the F word in schools. F, failure. Worst thing that can happen in schools. Things that everybody dreads and is frightened of. Teachers as much as kids. But the culture of innovation, Steve, as you well know, is all about trial and error. There is no innovation without trial and error, without failing and trying again. You know, I went to IDEO, the most innovative design company in the world. Their company motto is fail early, fail often. The whole process is about iteration, as you know. And finally, the culture of schooling is all about extrinsic rewards and incentives. You learn to get the grade. You learn for the rewards, the bennies. But what I've learned, Steve, is that the culture of innovation is much more about intrinsic motivation making a difference, wanting to do something worthwhile. And then when I went back, and this is particularly important for parents to understand, when I went back and tried to understand what what had my parents done among the innovators whom I profiled to encourage uh, intrinsic motivation, and what had teachers done, three things stood out, Steve. Both parents and teachers had explicitly encouraged play, passion, and purpose. I think they, those are the cornerstones of the intrinsic motivation that all of the, the most successful and effective innovators have.
1: I love that perspective, and I'm always curious, these five contradictions and these three keys of important things to inspire in a young innovator, did those things dawn on you all at once or were they just kind of the slow process of going through this book or had they kind of occurred to you before the book and the No and
0: absolutely they emerged completely from the research, Steve. As with all of my work, I have a question in mind, but never any sort of preconceived answers, never even a hypothesis. So this all emerged from the interviews that I had done. So I interviewed eight young people in great depth, all of whom were, and let's be clear, I'm talking about innovators who in this case are creative problem solvers. There are two kinds of innovation. There's innovation that brings new possibilities to life, and that may be a a matter of particular talent at a particular time in history, like a Steve Jobs. But then there's the innovation that is the result of creative problem solving. We, Steve, are born curious, creative imaginative. We are all born with the capabilities of creative problem solving until those qualities are schooled out of us. So I interviewed eight young people who are creative problem solvers in all kinds of domains, high tech, STEM, the arts, nonprofits. equal number of men and women, some from privilege, some from poverty. And it was in their interviewing. And then I interviewed all of their parents. And then I asked them, tell me about a teacher who's made a significant difference in your life. Because they all told me that they had become innovators in spite of their schooling, not because of it. Now, mind you, Steve, some have gone to Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Carnegie Mellon. What they said was it wasn't the schooling, it was the individual teacher who'd made the greatest difference. So when I interviewed the parents, I interviewed the teachers, and I put all of these interviews together and struggled with the data, slowly what I came to understand as these these contradictions and as the importance of play, passion, purpose began to just perkle up from the research.
1: I'd like to rewind because something you said in the beginning of our conversation related these two things because you mentioned that when you had written The Global Achievement Gap, you'd done similar types of interviews, but with the uh, CEOs and big movers and shakers, but that, right. but that those conversations had actually sparked this idea for the Creating Innovators book. What was that question? Because you said there's always a question that drives you. What was that question that was generated that drove well, you? Well,
0: with, with The Global Achievement Gap, my question was, what are the most important skills in the global knowledge economy? I have read Thomas Friedman's book, the world is flat. And it had a profound influence on me, Steve. And I began to realize that there's kind of the monumental changes going on here. And so my question was, what are the most important skills kids are going to need? And what do senior executives see as the deficits or what's missing? But what happened was I did that, I wrote the book about what I call the seven survival skills, uh, which emerged, again, entirely from the interviews and the research about the core competencies that matter most. And for folks who want to review those, uh, you'll see articles and so on on my website, TonyWagner.com. But what happened, Steve, was I finished the book in 08. I began doing a lot of speaking and travel internationally. And I continued to talk to executives. And as I did so, I realized, guess what? This economy is moving so fast that, in fact, we don't really have a knowledge economy anymore. We don't have a global knowledge economy, we have something different. And these executives, and this is now after having finished that 2008 book, began to talk to me more and more about the world of innovation. And that's when I realized, well, I'd captured a moment in time with a 2008 book, and those seven survival skills are absolutely necessary, but guess what? In the innovation era, they're not sufficient. Young people need something more than just those skills. And that's what led me to research and write about the world of innovation.
1: I love it. Well, we're coming to the end of the interview, and I always want to ask two very specific questions because I'm i curious about what I hear you know, across the, the career spectrum uh, on these two questions. And the first question is, what in this digital age, and you've touched on the edges and you've talked about it a little bit, but I just want to drive right in, what does it mean to be educated? If we put quotes around that word educated, what does that word mean now? If, you say, if someone said, I want to go get educated, what would you tell them?
0: That, that's a great question. Uh, I think uh, first and most important is that someone knows how to learn. They've learned how to learn on their own independently. The second is that they've retained the curiosity with which we are all born, which is so often schooled out of us. Because you may have the technique of learning how to learn, but if you're not curious then you're lost. And related to that is knowing how to ask really good questions. That's what emerged from my interviews with executives. They said critical thinking is important. I said, I pushed back. Well, what is critical thinking? They said it's knowing how to ask really good questions. So those three things all go together. Learning how to learn, being really curious, and knowing what questions to ask and how to ask good questions are critical. But then there's a couple of dispositions, Steve. One is having a moral grounding having an ethical framework, having a sense of what's right and wrong. And I think that has to be rooted in a deep and profound empathy, a capacity to empathize with other people. So that's a disposition, that's not a skill. And then the other disposition that I think is critical is perseverance, tenacity, being able to recover from mistakes or having fallen down. So those Five things, to me, are critical. And then, you know, we can talk more about the specific skills of learning how to learn, critical thinking, communication skills, collaboration skills, uh, creative problem solving, and so on. Those all, to me, fall under the broader category of learning how to learn.
1: Well, I like how you made it really practical. You gave us some very speci- uh, three very specific uh, things to learn and then two things that, I might have to ask you further questions about afterwards, um, because uh, it's not as obvious to me how to create a disposition, but uh, maybe there are some things. Uh, but let's wrap up with this final question, um, and this is more of a philosophical question. What is, it, what is the purpose of an education? Why do we educate?
0: I believe education must prepare young people for work, for learning, and for citizenship. And the interesting thing to me is that those used to be separate universes, so to speak. That the skills you needed for work in a 20th century industrial economy were radically different than the skills you may need to be a good citizen or a lifelong learner. But in the innovation era, those skills have converged, Steve. The skills you need for work, for learning, and for citizenship are the same. What I just said about what is the, what is the outcome of education, knowing how to learn, knowing how to ask good questions, being curious... Being persistent and tenacious, having an ethical framework, those are precisely the things you need for work, for learning, and for citizenship. They've
1: converged. Wow. Well, I think we're going to wrap it right there. Thank you, Tony, for taking time to speak with our audience. And uh, if if there are uh, listeners who are interested in getting in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Through my website at TonyWeidner.com. You go to the About section, and you can email me directly through that, and I answer every email I get. And I want to thank you, Steve, for asking great questions, because that's what makes for a wonderful interview as well as for learning.
1: Thank you, Tony. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Me For me as well.
1: Tony is one of those powerful thinkers who shape how we view a topic. In the business world, we call him a thought leader. He has seen the shift to the innovation economy and has captured the thoughts of the country's business leadership on how to navigate into this new space. It is no accident that the innovative approaches we are bringing to tech education brought Tony and I into contact. For several years, Tabletop Inventing has been offering Inventor Camp, a place of innovation to teenagers. Let us show you just how innovative your teenager can be. With 3D printers, computer programming, and electronics, they won't be bored. Parents and students both tell us we can't believe how much learning has happened in just four days. To sign up for Inventor Camp, go to ttinvent.com forward slash Inventor Camp. That's T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T dot C-O-M forward slash I-N-V-E-N-T-O-R-C-A-M-P to sign up for Inventor Camp.